coming up on the Not Almost There podcast. Every day I have to pay my bills. That's the way I look at it. I don't feel like going to the gym or practicing every day, but I owe and I need to pay my bills. That's the way I tend to look at things. And, and I think I have this, this concept in my head of never get in the habit of doing what's most comfortable for you over what's best for you. And that, that's really yeah. drives my work ethic. And I think we, we all have to remember that if you've been blessed and you have a decision to be better, you owe. So I don't want to deprive the universe of the best version of me. I don't want to deprive the universe of the best version of me meeting you, Joe. So I get up every day and I keep swinging. If it was up to me, I would sit on the couch, honestly, eat potato chips, donuts, and play my Nintendo Switch. But I don't want to <laughs> let you down. So I figure if I do my very, very best and you do your very, very best and collectively we put this best energy in the world, that has to equal something magnificent. And I want to see what that magnificence is. Welcome to another episode of the Anonymous There Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura, and I have a truly incredible guest and story. I cannot wait for you to hear. But first, I'd like to quickly thank everyone that came out to Refuel in person or virtually. There's thousands of people streaming Refuel live and also a few hundred in person, which is incredible. It was so great to see human beings again in person, getting inspired, sharing stories and learning from some of the most amazing speakers in the world. There is obviously incredible moments and takeaways that I'll do my best to recap those soon. But if you missed it, you'll be able to see the event in its entirety on my YouTube page. So if you have not subscribed yet, please do. Just go to youtube.com forward slash not almost there and subscribe and you'll get alerted when this comes out. Now today, I want you to picture this scenario. You're five years old, all alone on the streets of a busy city. You're hungry, you can't remember the last meal you had. You have unturned clothes, no shoes, and you're looking for your mother, who's nowhere to be found. You know you're on your own for the night, so you search these sewer gates and you're elated to find some pocket change, just enough to buy some food to eat. You know you need to find a place to sleep, so you curl up at the base of a tree outside in a park. You wrap your arms around yourself tight, feeling the scars at your side from when you were abandoned as a baby by your mother and rats gnawed at you. You fall asleep alone with only your thoughts to keep you company. I know this is a hard scenario to picture and even fathom. It seems like the start to some fictitious movie that Steven Spielberg creatively spun up, but this was a reality for my guest today, Dr. Richard Antoine White, who still has those scars on his side even today. On this episode, Dr. White shares his incredible life journey from being homeless with his mother on the streets of Baltimore to being the first black musician in the United States to earn a doctorate in tuba and is now a professor of tuba at the University of New Mexico. Dr. White is also an author of the critically acclaimed book, Impossible, and has been blowing up the media circuit with his unbelievable story about defying the odds. I love this conversation, and I know you will too. So get your shoes on, head outside, and let's listen to what's possible with Dr. Richard Antoine White. Welcome, Richard, to the Not Almost There podcast. It is an honor to have you here today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I read your your book, Possible, and I was absolutely blown away. Uh, that made me 
deep dive into your interviews on NPR, which I thought was fantastic. Your documentary, which I want to talk about, it was a little bit hard to find, but once I found it, it was well worth it. It's only about 23 minutes long. Um, but really what, what I want to start is with your story. You have such an incredible, rich story and, uh, and the audience really needs to, I think, hear and understand it. And your book is so well written, but if you wouldn't mind taking us back to Baltimore when you were a toddler, I think that's the best place to start this. Yes, I, I will. And it's unfortunate. Uh, I guess it's fortunate. It depends on how you want to look at it. The documentary is usually 30 minutes long, but because of Magnolia, they cut it to fit their network. So when you're searching for uh, it, it's called it. Hi, I'm Richard Antoine White and not Raw Tuba, just so the audience know. But uh, Joe, back in Baltimore, Every day, you know, like any normal kid, I woke up and I wanted to play, but uh, a few things were different from a normal childhood in that I would search the gutters for coins so that I could go to the local uh, open market to get some chicken gizzards or chicken wings or whatever. And amazingly, people drop coins and they end up in the gutter system, like the drainage that uh, drains the water when it rains. And so I would often find coins, make my way up to the open market. I'm sure I didn't have enough, but they would always give me something. And then I would eat that food, and because it was so unpredictable as to where my next meal would come from, I would store it under my tongue. And also, I searched in dumpsters and would find shoes that were too big, but I would stuff them with newspaper and uh, fill them so that they would fit. And this was at age four and three. And then, at the end of the day, my task was to find my mom. And sometimes I was successful, sometimes I wasn't successful. And when I wasn't successful, I ended up sleeping under, you know, abandoned trees, uh, old trees or an abandoned building. And uh, that was my life. And oftentimes I'm asked, you know, would you change it? No. You know, it's the hand I was dealt. I played it to the best of my ability. And I tend to think that life is fair because it's unfair to everyone. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great setup. But I want to dive a little bit deeper in, into that because I thought, I thought it was... Um... Just when I well, when I read the part that you had um, developed some some scars or you have uh, something on your stomach and it was from um, it was from rats essentially eating your body at some point and as as grotesque as that may seem as a little boy I cannot even fathom that happening. Can you expand on that a bit? Because I think it it shows like how serious this was. Yeah, you know, my mom unfortunately had her own demons and battles, and her battle was with alcoholism. And I guess this is a serious disease when it calls. I mean, you do what you need to do to serve that craving. And I was left in a burnt-out, abandoned building. And, you know, the crazy thing is people were aware of the situation, but everyone feels empathy. So no one wants to call Child Protective Services because they don't want to take the kid away from, you know, my mom. And ultimately, they called one day. I was crying. My uncle Ricky Jr. came down and saw rats gnawing away at my side. I still bear the scar today. And he shot them like, bam, bam. And uh, he thought uh, right after, oh, my gosh, I probably made the kid death. Luckily, my hearing is fine. And uh, he saved the day, actually. So that's, that is Baltimore. I think if anyone ever watched the show The Wire, you think some of it's outrageous. It is the truest de depiction of Baltimore that you could have. I can't imagine going through that and you were when that happened were you around four years old oh no i was much younger than that like baby oh okay you know Got it. so, so he you were had to, he had to tell me what happened like i'm talking baby like i said well what's up with this scar and he said well let me tell you you know many like many yeah. years after after the event yeah and then when you say you um 
you were trying to find your your mothers. Is that because you guys were together during the day, and then she would wander off and be drinking with folks, and and then you just couldn't you couldn't find her at night sometimes? Yeah, I think we were both guilty. I think uh, I didn't have structure or rules. You know, the thing that's awesome about you know being homeless is that there's no structure. There's no time to, to come home because there is no home. So I wandered off and just pretty much did, did my thing and, you know, tried to find her at the end of the day. You know, ultimately, me and my mom had such a strong love. You know, uh, I tell people all the time now, you know, she is a hero. This is not a sob story. This is a triumphant story because ultimately she did one of the hardest things there is to do. And that is to give her kid up so that they can have a better chance at life. So she's my hero. I think that's amazing. And the the it's clear in the in the book the love that you have for her and and how even though you were living in in that state you would would rather lived with her in that state than be pulled apart at, at your your young age and then you realized it obviously later in life that that was the right thing what was it um what was the point that you decided or someone decided for you that you needed to be pulled out of her care uh, so one day I couldn't find my mom and you can actually look it up. I think like 1978, it was the blizzard of all blizzards in the Northeast. Uh, I mean, this thing was so massive. Uh, people, were, the police were driving around in blue ribbon trucks. I don't even know if that bridge still exists, but <laughs> they were driving around in these big bread trucks. Uh, I was barefoot. I tried to find my mom. To me, it seems like I was banging on the doors like Hercules of family members, but no one heard me. And I crawled in what's called a vestibule. In Baltimore, it's known for marble steps and that leads to a vestibule, which is just a little entryway before you actually enter the house. One of them happened to be open. I was found frozen. Next morning, I woke up. I just remember a sea of yellow and lots of tea. Uh, they called authorities and uh, the people that originally adopted my mom uh, started to take legal custody of me uh, because they thought that uh, if this happens again, I might not survive. Wow! And it, and so that began that began my life with my foster parents. Yeah, and and, uh, and I know, and a lot of these questions I I've read in the book, but I, I want to lead you to explain a little bit of this um, for for the audience here. So the um, what were your feelings then when you were kind of taken away from your your mother at that point? Oh, man, I was angry. Like, all I thought was these people were taking me away from the person I love. And then I got to, in the book, I think I call it Buckingham Palace. I got to this house where you ate three meals a day. I would slide half a sandwich in my pocket. And they were like, look, if you want another sandwich, just ask. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm going to put this sandwich in my pocket. Uh, I would take something called a bubble bath and put on pajamas. And they thought I was sick because the next morning I'd be on the floor in my dirty clothes sleep because that's what I was most comfortable and I was so angry at them that my best friend for years was myself. I talked to myself in the mirror because I refused to talk to the people that took me away from my mom. And one defining moment, because there was a transition there, too. Uh, I still went to school at Holland Park, far away from my per foster parents' home. I'm not sure how the school system works or how I had to go there. But uh, my mom came to the fence one day and talked to me. She sang Grease Lightning. We sang a little tune. And she was, it was forbidden. She wasn't supposed to do that. But I was so happy. And she said to me, uh, I love you. Don't ever forget that. And I'm giving you uh, 
better life by letting you stay with the, the family. And then she gave me a big kiss and said, hey, this will be our secret. Don't tell them. And at that moment, I felt a sense of belonging because I wasn't going to let my mom down, my hero. And she explained to me what she was doing. And I walked away with like some magical power. This is our secret. I saw my mom. Now I'm going to do good for mom. I really felt like I belonged in. And that started to change the tide at uh, Vivian and Richard's house. I no, the first time she took you shopping too, like you were, you went to the, you went to, I think it was a Kmart, right? Yes. <laughs> and uh, that's, that was an incredible story too. Can you touch on that? I was blown away. Like we went to Kmart yeah. and you know, as a little kid, you're struggling. I think all little kids, the first time you see high top shoes, you're just fascinated. I was like, oh man, I want these. Which ones can I get? And Vivian looked right at me and said, you can have both. I was like, What? So I start piling the cart up with shoes, different colored jeans and clothes. I was so happy. And she was like, get whatever you want. And then I had a moment of panic as we were leaving the store. I was like, oh, my gosh, who's going to pay for all this? I've never had this luxury, right? She whipped out back then, I guess I'm dating myself, a checkbook <laughs> and wrote a check yeah. and paid for everything. And so the next day I go to school. I'm excited. I got my new shoes, my new clothes. And I'm made fun of because they're Kmart brand. I didn't have Jordash. I didn't have Nike. Uh, I didn't care what those kids were saying. They had no idea, man. I was like, these are my new clothes, and I'm very, very, very proud. It just puts things in context, right? Like how how you didn't have anything, and then you get presented with just shoes, period, <laughs> and how happy you were. And I, I just, uh, you know, I try to teach my kids that as much as possible, but it's it's tough to put things into context because they're, they're growing up in a in a blessed life and a much different life than 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 i did and uh and definitely um way more fortunate than many people out there which brings me to kind of my next question on this was when you were growing up um and you were a toddler running the streets or or walking around aimlessly many times was there other people your age at that point with you that you were hanging out with that were in a similar predicament like how bad was the problem no, I don't think anyone was in the predicament. And I think if you put in context of the 70s, people were used to looking out and taking care of each other. And that generation, if you were born just a little before that, they had a really rough time because they, a lot of people ended up uh, dependent on alcohol or heroin or these drugs, which entered the States doing that. And I think what's important for people to know is that I had, you know, four years, four or five years of a rough life. Some people have 10, 15, 20, 30 years. So in that regards, I feel very blessed. And I think even if people wanted to take me in, there were two obstacles in front of them. One, I was my mom's child and she was going to let you know. So even if you tried to mm. intervene, it wasn't going to happen, which I didn't understand that until years later. People told me, no, you was your mom's child and she wasn't going to let anyone take care of you. And then also some people cried and, and, in a very weeping way and said, you know, we couldn't afford to take care of you, you know, which is astonishing to me, but that's how hard times were. Like another kid at the table meant that one of their kids possibly wouldn't eat. I get it. And I'm not angry. You know, that's just the way it works out sometime. I'm glad that life uh, navigated me in such a way that it blessed me with an extraordinary imagination. And I, I call it my superpower. I didn't see other kids living the life that I lived, but sometimes I had to imagine a warm blanket. I had to imagine a full tummy. And I think it actually saved my life. Wow. And when you were, when you were talking to yourself at, at Vivian's, what were some of the things you were saying? Do you recall? 
Oh, yeah, it was very basic. Like, hey, I know you. It's going to be okay. It's going to be me and you. Oh, look at you. You're smiling the same as me. Wow, you're waving. You're doing exactly what I'm doing. How you doing, buddy? That kind of conversation. <laughs> Got it. Got it. So so then you're you're in school. You're, you start to probably fit more in, uh, albeit some kids have uh, better brands on. Uh, what uh, I know, you start getting in, into some fights, some alter, some altercations. Like, what was what was happening? Was it tough for you to acclimate to that environment? It was because I didn't have rules. It's like you know, I think I depict this in the book. I want to ride the sliding board, so I pushed everyone out the way and threw the person at the right. top off the sliding board and went wee. <laughs> and then I got to the bottom and I got in trouble <laughs> because it's like you wait your turn in line. I was like, but I wanted to ride the sliding board. I didn't understand. So I think the the regulations and rules were hard for me to adjust. And I think uh, from a teacher's point of view, no one realized how much I didn't know. Because when you don't know anything, everything is right. <laughs> right? I didn't right. know anything. So I didn't see anything wrong with throwing the person off the top of the sliding board. You know, I didn't know any better. And at that point, did you have a mentor outside of the family, like that point in your life? Or someone I that think was helping we were, guide the way? I think we were all trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, I was deficient at reading um, the transition of switching schools to uh, the the emotional scars of just being in a new family. And, you know, my life really didn't change until about fourth grade when somebody came to the school with a ton of instruments. And me and my friend uh, later became my best friend. Dante was sitting there trying to decide what instrument to play. And I looked at him and said, yo, we got to play trumpet. Only got three vowels. It's easy, right? Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> and so uh, things didn't get better for me in school. My parents brilliantly had this idea that they would take this trumpet away from me and they gave me an ultimatum. The only way I get the trumpet back if I turn my grades around and pass. Band gave me a sense of belonging. So I was determined to get that trumpet back. I've never repeated a great sense. I got my trumpet back. Uh, I developed a culture with people that, you know, had the same goal as me. There was a collaborative environment. And, you know, that moment changed my life forever. That's, that's incredible. So at that time, wait, were you starting to see that you were going to outwork people? And when it came to things you were passionate about, like like music in this case, that you would practice more than others or was it just something you started to toy around with at that uh, later on i realized some of the things you're talking about at this early stage i think it just gave me a sense of belonging a sense of collaboration in the sense that you know oftentimes i'm asked hey when you play music do you feel awkward that you're often the only black person classical music in particular and i go you know we all play from the same notes right so I think I was right. fascinated collectively with the goal of playing like, you know, the, the TV show, Sanford and Son theme, and jamming on it. Later in life, though, we can talk about the determination that I had with music and seeing people that were more talented than me uh, because I figured out something that uh, there will always be more people talented than me, but no one will outwork me, and I can control that. Did you find that you had a talent or a knack for music even though you had a sense of belonging, was it something you just got and you understood more than others? Uh, I think uh, music gave me the gift of storytelling. Uh, I'm going to date myself again. I learned to play tuba on what's called a cassette tape. So I walked in the room alone and it says, hello, welcome to the tuba. 
Boob, this is B flat. Pause the tape. When you have mastered B flat, we will move <laughs> on to C. Boob, boob. So I learned it orally. So I think what I infused into those music notes was my life, my story. So although I couldn't read music when I auditioned for the School for the Arts, it was apparent that there was passion behind the sound. There was something story worthy of a story, and I got in. But that's how I learned. So my, my again... My superpower was my imagination. I could imagine what I want the note to sound like and tell my story. Uh, and I think that was the gift that I had that pushed me above everyone else playing musical instruments. And you were you were also in sports around that time too, right? Football? Oh, yeah. I'm 6'5", 340 pounds. I was supposed <laughs> to be a football player. I broke my hip, showed up at the Baltimore School for the Arts many years later with crutches, a sousaphone. Like, I was really wearing it, you know, with the bell yeah. on my head and crutches to audition the day after auditions were over. And the director said, yeah, what are you doing wanna... here? Oh, go ahead. Am I yeah, too, too I far want... ahead? No, no, I want to dive into that because I think that's, a, that's incredible. But how did you go from then uh, well, well. First off, what? How old were you when you broke your hip? Uh, this was eighth grade. This is like somewhere around in eighth grade because I would have been entering high school or about to enter high school, and then the trajectory of my life changed from wanting to be a football player in Carpenter at a vocational tech school to, well, what else I got? I got the tuba, so I'll go audition for School for the Arts. So, how did you know it that back then? Because I also want to put in in perspective, and I I heard you say this that. You know, there was no internet, really. Like, there was the encyclopedia. How how'd you even know that this school existed and it's something that you wanted to try out for? I was in Twigs, which is to work in gaining skills. I never took it seriously. It's a prep school for the School for the Arts. But at that time, I knew because my schoolmates had just taken the audition. They Some of them knew they wanted to be an actor. Dante knew he wanted to be a trumpet player. And they were bragging that they took the School for the Arts audition. So after I broke my hip, I was like, I'm just going to go down School for the Arts and audition, like randomly, like no clue about when the auditions were or whatever. Literally it's just, just like woke showed up. up one day. Woke up yeah. and said, I'm going to audition for the school for yards on a Saturday. <laughs> on, the, on the one day that it has the least likelihood that anyone would be there. Exactly. Yeah. That's hilarious. So so you show up there. What happens? I show, I tell dad, hey, we're going to go audition for school for the odds. He says, right now? I said, yes, sir. So we get in the car with my Caesar phone. I'm on crutches. I'm wearing the Caesar phone. I'm trying all the doors. None of them are opening. And then one opens, and the director of the music school just happened to be there because he forgot something. And he looked at me and said, what are you doing here? And I said, I came to audition. He said, well, auditions were yesterday. And I looked him in the eyes and boldly said, but I'm here now. And he said the audacity <laughs> of determination made him go, wow, this kid is determined. I ought to hear him. So we walked upstairs. I played a little Mozart thing. And then he was like, interesting. And he put some sight reading in front of me, pointed to a note. E-Fly said, uh, do you know what this is? And I said, yeah, it's this. He said, yeah, but do you know the name of the note? I said, yeah, it's this. I pushed down the first vowel. He said, yeah, but what's the name of the note? I said, man, I said it's this. And he said, okay, let's try this a different way. <laughs> if I play this on the piano, can you play it back? And I was like, of course. <laughs> so he played something on the piano. I played it back. And he said, hold on. Went and called the brass faculty, came back and said, you must be one of the luckiest kids on the planet. We're going to accept you in the Baltimore School for the Arts to give your listeners an idea. Out of 600 kids they hear, they may accept 35 of them. That is that is incredible. Do you, do you ever think that if you showed up during 
during the auditions that you would have had a chance like you did on that Saturday alone? I think I changed their mindset. I think it was meant to be. And, you know, I, I can't really predict the future, but I know now that part of their audition process is to pick kids on potential. So you can be extremely talented and not get in. But what they try to see is beyond the deficiencies and see what is possible. Uh, wow, look at that. As, as my book. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think the yeah. school was uh, created to give inner city kids opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise normally have. And they're succeeding in that. And I know I've given them more problems than they probably signed up for because now they go to extraordinary lengths to keep their students and go to distance for them. Yeah, that's incredible. And I, and I know there's many other famous folks that uh, that attended that school, Tupac, to name one, and and, and others. Did you do you get get a chance to? Uh, and maybe maybe you could talk about some of the, the other people that you got to meet when you were there, and and oh, how they went on. Yeah, the school is just incredible. I mean, we've got Dante Winslow, band leader Justin Timberlake, Queen Latifah, Tupac. Tupac was just a genius. I don't know when the thug life came. He was a nerd. I watched him do Shakespeare and iambic pentameter. Uh, he would preach to us about history, you know, knowing the Black Panthers. Later on, I found out his mom was uh, very instrumental and involved in the Black Panther movement. Jada Pinkett, they gave us this idea that we could be stars. Uh, Tracy Toms, you look on Broadway, she's in Rent. Uh, it's just extraordinary, the list of people that uh, that comes from that school. And I actually think that a lot of schools in our country should just model after that school. The difference being that at that school, the adults run the school and not the kids. Got it. Um, what do you mean by that? I mean that when you fail a class, you're going to take it over. They do not lower the bar of excellence. I think we have this empathetic approach to understanding uh, – and relating to people that are at a disadvantage. So we're lowering the bar of excellence. And in my mind, excellence is void of color, it's void of gender, it's just on the level or not. And what we have to do is create the resources so that people can compete on the level of excellence. And if it takes you 10 tries, so be it. Uh, by the 10th try, you'll really get it. And that's what I mean by that at the Baltimore School for the Arts. It seemed like that school, your instructors really pushed you uh, and it feels like today we live in such a sensitive society. I think you're kind of getting at that in a way that schools, in many cases, like can't really push the kids like that. How do you how do you balance that, or what advice do you have for educators or parents, and what what that balance is if there isn't if yeah. there is such a thing as balance. I think the balance comes in togetherness. It, uh, there are a couple myths that we have in our country. Just pull yourself up by the boots and strap. Not everyone has boots and a strap. Or just work as hard as you can and it'll work out. I know plenty of people that have worked as hard as they can and it hasn't worked out. I think this concept of unity and togetherness is how we move forward. Together is an interesting word. It spells to get her. And in my mind, to get her, who is her? I think it's Lady Liberty. And I think ultimately what we all want in life and what School for the Arts provided me is what I call the three C's. Choice, chance, change. We all want a chance to create the right choices to make the kind of change that we would like to see. And I think that's what the Baltimore School for the Arts uh, gave me, is that choice, chance, and change. And I'm forever grateful uh, for them. And the other thing is that... Uh, 
you have to be willing to go the distance. So we're so afraid to go to the point of exhaustion. But if you keep doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've been getting. The point of exhaustion is where new beginnings happen, where you've used everything you got and now it's a new day. Now you're going to know something that you didn't previously know. We're also afraid of failing. And in my mind, failing is finding an intended lesson in needed growth. Whenever I fail, what did I need to know that I didn't know that I now know so that I can fix the problem? You know, and I think if you keep that in the right perspective, there's no uh, task that you cannot tackle. And I'm grateful for the School for the Arts for establishing these things in me. It's, it sounds like just an incredible place. I, I wonder, how did they determine potential? Like, how, how do you, how, how do they choose kids if it's not on current academia or current talents? Like, what was their, what was their method? Because I think that, and that's so intriguing to me. And I, I agree. I think that's just, that's something we need to pay more, more attention to, to give kids a chance that, that need that chance. Yeah. But what was the methodology? I think like determination, even though it could have been perceived as rebellious when he said auditions was yesterday and I go, but I'm here now. That showed determination. I also think uh, hunger, if you're hungry, you know, in the interview process, they ask you, why do you want to be here? You have an opportunity to say what you're passionate about. I think that weighs a lot, even if the talent is not fully uh, developed there. Uh, and then ultimately, I think the the major thing that they have in common when uh, with successful uh, people is that they never give up. They never gave up on me. And I fell short a lot. So I think they roll the dice with potential. And yeah, do they have a 100% rate? No, but they're in a 90 percentile rate. And I think they're willing to take that chance because you never know when that star is going to be born. You know, it's, it's why they have a job, I think. Yeah, and I I also read the stat that ninety nine percent given ninety nine percent college acceptance rate too, and most schools are run at sixty six percent. Yeah, school for the arts prepared me to, like I said, to have that choice, chance, and change. And then later, when I went to Peabody in undergrad, you know, my mentor David Federley really taught me something. I call him the uh, the truth teller because he tells it like it is. Uh, he was very hard on me, and and really revealed where my deficiencies were, but believed in me. And what I learned from him is that the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off, but then you'll be better for it in the end, you know, because he, uh, my very first lesson, he sat me down and said, Hey man, I just want you to know in two years, I'm going to have to tell you if I think you should go on in this career and I'm not going to lie. Wow. <laughs> you know, and prior to going to Peabody, I had seen David Federley at the Baltimore School for the Arts, and he gave me a laundry list of things to do. So when I showed up to the audition at Peabody, he said, oh, my, you've done all of them. Wow. Mm. And he said there were more there were people that had more talent that came highly recommended. But there was just something in my sound and the way I approached the instrument. You know, music is not complicated by words. So you can be unread and still tell a profound story with a musical instrument. I'm not sure you can get, be unread and give a profound speech articulated in the right, right manner if you're not well read. Right, right. Um, I, I, I don't know why in my mind when I hear the stories about him. I think about Whiplash, that movie. Uh, oh. Have you seen that movie? Refresh me, it, I have seen it. It's it's just about an an instructor who is um, it's a it's 
pretty hard on a jazz drummer. Oh, I've that's, seen that. Yes. And so that's, I love that movie. And some people think it's hardcore, but the bottom line is when people ask me, what does it take to be successful in music? I often say everything, everything mm-hmm. you got. It's like training for the Olympics because you can train for the Olympics for four years and then come up short. And then you have to make a decision. Are you going to come back or not? You know, and what I think about all the time is, oh, man, I just have to win one orchestra. That's all I have to do. Mm-hmm. David Federley told me, they said, look, I've won one more job than you. And then I thought, I could win one. You know, no matter how difficult the task. Oftentimes, I'll give my students a piece and they're like, oh, my gosh, Dr. White, I can't play it. I'm going to have to drop out of school. So I'll open up the piece of music and I'll go, play the first note. They play the first note. Then they look at me all weird. And I say, play the last note. Then they play the last note. I was like, look, we got the beginning. We got the end. All we have to do is work on the middle. <laughs> <laughs> and they go, Wow. <laughs> You know, that's sort of how I I look at life uh, in the terms of whether it's a good day or bad day. The best part about every day for me is that I'm not done yet. That's that's awesome. Wait, give me a sense of your work ethic then. Like, how often did you practice compared to others? Like, what was was a day like? When I was on the circuit, I practiced probably five to six hours a day. I would be in the gym six o'clock. After the gym, I would do my warm-up, go home, eat breakfast, take a nap, come back doing lunch, play some etudes, uh, fundamentals, and then come back at night and play solos and excerpts. Uh, I did it religiously. I still practice. I just got back from the gym. I'll go get my hair uh, done, and then I'll come back and practice. Uh, My philosophy is that I owe. Because I've been blessed with this talent and I've been successful, every day I have to pay my bills. That's the way I look at it. I don't feel like going to the gym or practicing every day, but I owe and I need to pay my bills. That's the way I tend to look at things. And and I think I have this this concept in my head of never get in the habit of doing what's most comfortable for you over what's best for you. And that that's really yeah. drives my worth, I think. And I think we, we all have to remember that if you've been blessed and you have a decision to be better, you owe. So I don't want to deprive the universe of the best version of me. I don't want to deprive the universe of the best version of me meeting you, Joe. So I get up every day and I keep swinging. If it was up to me, I would sit on the couch, honestly, eat potato chips, donuts, and play my Nintendo Switch. But I don't want to <laughs> let you down. So I figure if I do my very, very best and you do your very, very best and collectively we put this best energy in the world, that has to equal something magnificent. And I want to see what that magnificence is. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So this might be a silly question that then having said that, was there ever a moment when you wanted to give up or when you when you thought about those things, but the action was too hard or you were getting burnt out from practicing? Oh, yeah, I'm I'm normal. I have those thoughts. But oftentimes it's like it's like working out. So. If I do a 15-minute cardio and I'm going hardcore, boy, I want to quit about seven minutes. But I go, uh, only seven more minutes to get to the end. <laughs> you right. know, I'm thinking like, <laughs> well, I definitely ain't starting over, you know, because I'm, I'm somewhere above zero. And I think to myself, well, effort is never worth zero points. And I often think effort is always between you and you. So I actually have the power. So I'm going to take advantage of having the power. Oftentimes I talk to kids and they go, oh, this is all great. You know, you come in here, you get us excited. We're ready to go. And then you're going to leave. And what are we supposed to do after that? 
And I'll go, so wait a minute, let me get this straight. You're telling me I've motivated you, you're excited. And then when I leave, you're going to have this power. And then you're going to be in control and that you're going to opt not to take advantage of you being in control. You calling the shots because that's what you're telling me. You have an opportunity to be in control now. What are you going to do with it? And then they look at me like, wow, I never thought about it like that. <laughs> you know, take advantage of the power that's been bestowed upon you. Were, were there other mentors that you were finding this wisdom from? I mean, it's, it seems like you just, you've learned so much from where, you, where you've come from to your life experiences to even say all the things you've been saying in the last few minutes. Was Were there other influences that you were finding around you at that time? Yes, I think uh, my next book is going to be The Five Educative Languages of Teaching. And the five languages is the dreamer, who's Mr. Phillips, the Paganini of Tuba, who taught me how to dream. You know, the true teller, David Federley, who called the shots as they are. The freestyler, Ed Gostein, who taught me to think outside the box. Uh, the storyteller, my very first teacher, Richard Burns, who sent me to the library to look up the encyclopedia and all those things. And then the motivator, Mr. Perantoni, who really taught me how to compete and be excited about playing the tuba. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that book as well. Um, <laughs> the, let's, uh, let's take a sidestep for a second. Cause I, I know that you've over the recent years, I don't know how long back it is, but you've developed a, uh, uh, relationship with with your brother and it almost seemed like when i heard this story it was uh you guys were living in in a parallel slash alternate universe in mm -hmm. in that he was still with your mom i mean first off you didn't find out you had a brother until you were you were what six seven years old is that yeah maybe a little or, later somewhere yeah i think later than that because i so think you my find brother's, out he's he's 37 i'm 48 yeah. <laughs> so you find out you find out you have a brother. You now are living with this uh, family who's taking care of you, middle class household, um, getting these chances. But now your brother's still on the streets, right, in in Baltimore with your mom. Yeah, I think his father was was very responsible. So he had uh, somewhat similar but different life, and I think. Uh, when I found out I had a brother, I just did the only thing I knew how. You know, the McLeans were very loving people, but the way they showed me love is to provide for me. Like, we are, we're not traditional family. We don't wake up every morning and go, I love you. Have a great day. Uh, it's rare that we say that. You know, but you have what you need and you eat every day. So I would... I met my brother and would just get him gifts. If he wanted an NBA jacket, I would buy it. If he wanted a Nintendo, I would buy it. And one day, he got mad. And I think he started reminiscing... The last thing my mom said to him on her deathbed while she was dying of an asthma attack was for him to be like his big brother. That's incredible because that meant she really loved me like holy smokes. And he said, why don't you talk to me? Why don't you hang out with me? And I answered it very honestly. I said, I don't know you. I said, you're like a stranger to me that I just buy things for. And he paused and said, oh my gosh, I never thought about that. I don't know you either. He said, can we fix it? And I said, Sure. So we started talking to each other and became brothers. I stopped giving them gifts so randomly and realized that time was really valuable. And we became good friends, talk every day now. He's on the road touring with me. And, and I think in that moment, uh, my mom was probably looking over at us, wanting us to be united, and we gave her that gift. You know, 
So yeah. I'm very I'm grateful for him. I'm grateful for our relationship. And in the documentary, you guys play a, a song together where he freestyle raps. You play the tube, and it's an amazing beat. I'd love to include it in this mm-hmm. in this interview if if that's all right, just to just so people can hear it. Yes, the whole video is on YouTube now. It's pretty incredible. Oh, and cool. you know, you know, spiritually speaking. I think that's what my mom gave us. That's the bonding gift. She would sing to me all the time. She was a gifted singer. And I think if you watch the documentary, what you should take from that is not only did my mom give me a chance at life by being my hero, she connected us with the gift of music. And I hope that comes through in the documentary because that's a bond that we discovered, that we share, that we haven't previously practiced. When you see that in the film, it's the first time we've collaborated. But I know where it came from. So uh, do you think... Your mom always had something with music from the days of her singing Grease Lightning. Was that always, was music always special to you and Absolutely. Your, your mom back then? Absolutely. All our friends say she could really sing. I think she sang to me, and I think uh, it's something she passed on to both me and my brother. And I know uh, she's somewhere smiling on us. That's definitely a connecting item, uh, connecting bonding issue. And it's something like, you know, someone, if there was a superhero and they sprinkled the fairy dust on you and you don't see the fairy dust, but something has changed. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I felt in the studio when we created that song. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's incredible. I'm going to, I'll, I'll include that, that video in here. Cause it's just, uh, I love the beat of it too. Is it on yeah. uh, Spotify or iTunes or anything like that? Uh, I think right now they just released it on YouTube. Uh, so you can navigate that, put it up. I, I was able to post it, no problem. And, and it's the full, like the video was cut short in the documentary. It's the full song. got to remember, we spent eight hours in the studio. So there's a whole record one day waiting to be released. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. For for the audience, your your father, he was incarcerated, right, when you were mm-hmm. born and, and beyond. And then uh, the story of when you first met him, I think, was... It floored me. So can you explain that? Unbelievable. So it's the premiere of Raw Tuba in Baltimore at the Baltimore School for the Arts. Obviously, perfect scenario to premiere the documentary. Uh, You know, people in the audience, I want to say like six, five hundred people. We're playing. We're having a great show. And then we get to the Q&A part. And then some uh, stranger stands up and, and points to my first teacher and say, I just want to thank you for starting him and giving him a chance. Points to my second teacher and said, I want to thank you for being hard on him and telling him the truth. Points to my foster dad and says, and I want to thank you for loving him. And then the next words out of the mouth, you know, I was incarcerated. I really couldn't take care of him. In fact, I want to thank everyone for being here today. This is special. In that moment, I realized who he was. It was my natural dad. First time me seeing him in my life since I was a baby. I ran off the stage, gave him a hug. It was unbelievable. Came back to play We Are The World. Had to take about 30 seconds to compose myself before I played and uh, ended the concert with We Are The World. And it was a tremendous moment. After that, the next day, I canceled dinner with Richard McLean, my foster dad, to go out with my natural dad, Raymond Toller. And uh, when we went to the buffet, he gave me a hug, shook my hand, and slid 40 bucks in my hand. And it was a tremendous Mm. moment because I know that was a lot to him, but he wanted to show me a father-son moment and he did just that and I'm grateful for it. Wow. And and you guys still keep in touch today? Yeah, we made a promise to keep in touch, but you know how life is and there are so many years missing and I know he probably feels a lot of guilt. I don't. We do the best we can. Say hello 
you know, and check in on each other every now and then. Uh, the relationship is not at level zero, and we're working on it. And he's a, he's a social worker now? Yes, while he was incarcerated, got a couple degrees, social worker trying to make a difference, and it's just awesome to see the, the turnaround. I guess if there was a book, I think there is a book, The Art of the Turnaround or The Turnaround. Someone should write that book if it's not, but that is, <laughs> yeah. uh, that is just good to see. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. All right. So, uh, just to, just to now bridge the gap between the, the school that you're in and then what happens post, post school? Uh, post school, I start, uh, auditioning for jobs, start, you know, trying to find my way as a tuba player. And just before I graduated one year, I auditioned for about, you know, 10, 12 music festivals, and I didn't get into any of them. And I was really disappointed. So I took all of those rejection letters and pasted them around my room. And on the ceiling, I put a note above my pillow that said, when you don't feel like practicing, remember these. The next year, I got into every festival I auditioned for. And that's that, mm. the kind, that kind of determination. So uh, afterwards, I started auditioning for orchestras. Couldn't get out the first round. Couldn't figure it out. Uh, was trying to make it. De- decided that, one, no one would outwork me. Two, that I had to eliminate the guesswork. So I started recording myself every day and keeping a journal and was very honest about my plan and what I need to fix. Does that mean I didn't have deficiencies? No, but because I had this idea of eliminating the guesswork, I was able to disguise any deficiencies I might have had. And then I won. I started advancing. Uh, the big turnaround was the Boston Symphony. You know, back then, to get an, uh, an invitation to orchestras like this, if your resume is not built, you had to send in recording audio tapes and we didn't have this editing process so i think they heard 172 tapes of tuba players and they picked three and mine was one of those tapes so it was the first time i knew man i'm just major league i can do it (laughs) and then they didn't pick anyone and did it again i sent the same tape in and got in again so it was incredible i was like i can do this and then several auditions later, I won the New Mexico Symphony, Dream Job, yay, living the life, made the orchestra, and then it folded during the stock crash. And I was like, what is happening? So uh, this is so like 2008, I, right? Yes. And I was like, oh, no, man, all of this. So I actually thought, oh, I guess I got to go audition again. But I had this university job, and I was like, man, can I just work here and stay in New Mexico because I like it? They was like, oh, we love you, but you know, we don't have money. And I said... So you're saying if I find the money, I can have a full-time tenure track job? And they made the mistake of saying yes to, you know, a street hustler. So I went home and were like, man, who got the money? And I thought, I was like, the athletic department. So I called up the athletic department the next day and say, hey, can I teach your football players respiratory function? He was like, what a great idea. Yes. And that's how I got a tenure track full-time job at the University of New Mexico. Ends up, <laughs> no we, we were the worst team in the country. And so I didn't have to teach respiratory. They came back to me and said, hey, well, all we really got going for us is the entertainment of the marching band. Can you get us 15 sousaphone players? And I was like, I can do that in my sleep. So I went and got them 15 sousaphone players, and the rest is history. Now I am the only African-American male professor of tuba, full professor in the country. The other African-American is a female, Velvet Brown, who teaches at Penn State. One female, one male. So I'm very proud of that accomplishment. And you're the only uh, African-American 
who received their doctorate in tuba as well, right? Yes, and it's important for listeners to understand because I get calls all the time and say, hey, man, you know, back in 19 such and such, such and such got a DMA and, you know, he was before you. And I was like, congratulations, and I'm happy for them. I don't have a doctorate of musical arts. I have a doctorate of music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they go, oh, wow. Okay, thank you for the clarification. <laughs> so, and only two institutions offered the degree, so it's pretty prestigious. And if you were in the UK, it's a big deal. The distinction uh, between a DM DMA is really significant. One's primarily a PhD, like an academic uh, mm-hmm. degree, and one's more centered around performance. As you very well know, Indiana is the largest music school in the country, one of the most competitive. Uh, when you go there, it is serious. I think I started that degree in 1999 and didn't finish until 2012. <laughs> it's intense. <laughs> yes. Wow. Uh, so, so, so then what, it, what were you doing? Um, were you just getting jobs ever, ever since up until – recent until you you wrote your book or the last like decade what have you been spending Uh, your time with mostly so when i first left indiana i was making good money on uh you know recording studios and teaching adjunct at positions and now i do it all you know i travel uh well let's back up a little bit prior to that i would play in different orchestras different festivals i was teaching playing in quintet now i'm a motivational speaker i'm a full-time professor and i play in orchestra here and there i took a sabbatical from school for half a semester and i took a leave from both orchestras because i'm really trying to figure it out soundtracks an interesting story that's not in the book you know i was offered to play the uh, soundtrack to the lion king and so I was like, hey, man, this is this is awesome. I was like, but you know, I live in New Mexico, right? So I call my friends in L.A. because I know them. I call Jim and Doug and say, hey, man, I got a call to play The Lion King. What's up with this? They said, that's weird. So they go to their opera concert and they was like, yeah, man, you should take it. You should take the job. Well, Richard's a stand-up guy. It's really awesome of him to call us. He said, but you should take the job because it's a black thing. I said, excuse me? It's a what thing? He said, yeah, it's a black thing, man. It's supposed to be good. So it turns out a lot of people were angry that they didn't hire an African-American orchestra for Black Panthers. And so Hans Zimmerman wanted to make a tribute by hiring, obviously, a black orchestra for The Lion King, which is supposed to be all black cast. So I called the the agent up that was hiring. I said, hey, what's what's going on, when?" When did Hans Zimmerman hear me play? Oh, he never heard you play. Huh. Okay. Well, when did he see my resume? Oh, he's never seen your resume. Interesting. Take my name off this list. So I didn't take the gig <clears throat> because I want to be hired with integrity and merit. I'm going to cry every July 1st when those royalty checks came in, but I had to stand up for what I believe. Wow. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. I. It's just I don't believe in well-intended tokenism. Yeah. If you want to hire me, you should you should you should uh, hire me well enough to know who I am, or at least hear. Even if you hear one note, I probably would have still accepted the gig. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, just something, just put in a little effort there. That's uh, yeah, that's incredible. So, when did you decide to write the book? How how did that process come to be? Uh, I think. Uh, you know, the documentary was out. It, it was winning all kinds of awards. You know, I had had offers before. It just didn't feel right. With Dern and Dave, it felt very authentic and it felt right. And, you know, doing COVID and, you know, everything just before that, I was like, man, I should really 
write the book. And, you know, Macmillan called and I was like, yeah, we should do this. And then we started with what we're going to call it. And I just thought impossible, impossible against all odds. We got to do this. And as I was writing the book, COVID happens. And I was like, man, the world really needs a story of hope. And that propelled mm-hmm. me to just really get it done. And then the universe just came together because the book is out. I'm hoping that it, you know, we just keep hustling in it and more people learn about it. But my ultimate goal with the book in my life now is to simply inspire hope. And it just so turns out that with COVID, I think the world is really looking for hope. Yeah, no, I think it's it's great timing. You certainly do that. The the documentary then, I, I guess I didn't realize... Um, that was first. How how did that come to be before before the book was was uh, that? Yes, did people David, approach you for that or? David Duren were writing a documentary just simply about how the arts are underfunded, and you know the, uh, what is it called? Uh, the film the film industry has all these different shows, and uh, School for the Arts is usually part of it, and. They were interviewing School for the Arts, and someone at School for the Arts said, hey, you should really talk to Richard White. So they called me up, Mountain Film, Mountain Film Festival actually, goes all over the world. And they called me up and said, hey, man, we're going to do this film about how the arts are underfunded and the impact that it has on people's lives. After a 45-minute conversation, they said, you've just changed our mind. We're scrapping the funding for the arts, and we're going to do a documentary about you. And I was like, wow, wow. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> and that's, that's literally how it happened. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. And now it now that's now you get to tell your story to I mean such a wider audience. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Right now it's Discovery Plus. It's 22 minutes to fit Magnolia. What people don't understand is Joanna and Joanna and Chip launched their own network now. So in January it will be readily available nonstop on their new Magnolia network. I think Magnolia network launch was changed a little bit because of COVID, but in January, if just a few weeks, it will be launched and I'm really excited for the world to see Raw Tuba. Yeah, so is it is it going to be called Raw Tuba then? No, it will be called Hi, I'm Richard Antoine White. Got it. So I watched <laughs> that. I it, it took a few uh it it took some a little bit of brain surgery to figure out how to watch it cuz I was yeah. just like <laughs> I hit my I hit my friend up too that knows how to get any movie and I was like, "Can you find this?" It's it's called Raw Tuba, and he's just like, I can't. So I was trying to make the connection between uh, them, but I, I realized, though, I think it was in one of your, uh, in the NPR interview at the end, I realized I was on the right thing. So Nice. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad it needs to get, it needs to be easier to watch. Yes. So I'm glad that that'll happen soon. You know, ultimately, I hope someone picks up, the book thing is really interesting. I hope someone wants to do a feature film or TV series or something just so that, you know, the story gets out and whether you're at advantage or disadvantage, I just want everyone to know they can do it. The book I think is doing well right now. We're just getting started. And, uh, I thought it was doing great. And then Will Smith came out with his book, (laughs) you know, so, uh, but we're not done yet. Like I said, so, uh, I want this book in everyone's hands. And ultimately I hope that one day the film and the book, a uh, modified version of the book is in curriculums in all schools. Yeah, well, I'm certainly going to push this interview everywhere and the uh, and the documentary. Um, it's it's just incredible the, your whole uh, your story, your journey, all these lessons you've learned that you shared with us today. I just I, I don't know I, I I can't thank you enough. It's just been just incredible. Well, I appreciate you and thanks for 
take an interest in it. I think the one thing that we should cover that I haven't covered is what's going to happen with the proceeds from the book. And I hope to see you there one day, Joe, that the proceeds are going to go to the raw tuba ranch which will be my home. And also on the raw tuba ranch, there will be a stage. And if you don't play a musical instrument, don't worry. You can just sit on the stage and look pretty, but it's a place of fellowship and 24 7 there will be ramen noodle chili and beer uh the concept has gotten so much uh positive positivity that the city of albuquerque acknowledged me as an important person and they're helping me develop the raw tuba ranch so come on down no be way. yourself you know it's a place where you don't have to check your personality at the door you can just be yourself if you overindulge in the chili uh ramen noodle and beer we'll have barracks for you to stay at which is why i'm getting the city involved because apparently you need licenses and permits to do that kind of stuff <laughs> which i didn't check know. well <laughs> Check this out. So I know you're you're about inclusion. Uh, I'm creating one of the first non-alcoholic breweries uh, around. So amazing! So you have to load your truck. Yes, I will donate uh, non-alcoholic beer for it, and it tastes just like the real thing. It's just a just a little better for you. This is amazing. Yes, man. You got it, man. See you at the Raw Tuber Ranch, man. This is going to be fantastic. When's that going to open? My day. Oh, we're looking in the spring. We're looking right now. I'm searching maps for about 10 acres, and uh, I'm hoping to secure the land at least in the spring. So most likely spring of 2023. Awesome. That'll be that'll be a good time. Yeah, we open in uh, in this this spring. We open, and uh, I'm so looking forward to it. And and you have my word, man. I'm there, and I'll I'll fill up a truck and I'll drive it down. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, this is an awesome Thank collaboration, you. man. We're gonna make a difference. Thank you. Yeah, uh, that's incredible. Hey, thank you so much for your, your time today. It's truly a pleasure and an honor to get to know you. I know we were trying to make this happen in person, but this is the next best thing. And uh, I highly recommend your book on Possible. And uh, it's just an incredible story. We just touched on a little bit of it today. There's so much more and it goes really deep. Um, but please check it out. And I just thank you very much for being you. Uh, thank you. The last thing I'll say to the listeners is I believe there are thousands of problems in the world, but I also believe that 99% of them can be solved if we were just kind to one another. So be kind and thanks for having me on, Joe. Uh, what's up, Richard? You got your thank you, Richard, for the amazing conversation. You definitely defy the odds from the hands you were dealt with. And your story shows that even in the midst of adversity, and a life that is so difficult by having the right work ethic, tenacity, and preparation can lead you to knowing that anything is possible. And to self-reflect your book's title and think about the word impossible, I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E, and to reframe that into impossible is such a perfect way to describe your story. Your last words to us are really striking a chord now, too, to be kind. This is a simple concept, but one we overlook. So as you're out there in the world today, maybe rushing around, getting yourself ready for the end of the year and the holidays, be sure to leave with kindness. I agree with Richard. We can solve so many of our problems with just that. In the meantime, have a great holiday. And remember, you, me, we are not almost there.